It's August 31st, 2023. This is the best of Rook. There. Welcome to episode 284 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Hello to you from Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz. Durud Bashama. Hope you're doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Today's episode is part of a Best of Rook series we have been bringing to you for the entire month of August where we've been looking back at some of our favorite interviews over the last three and a half years and some of our most entertaining moments and we've been giving them to you. We've curated our favorites and we hope you check these conversations out, especially if you may have missed them the first time around. We're going to be bringing you brand new episodes of Rook starting with our season preview show next week on September 7th and then the big launch of a new edition of Rook on September 14th. In the meantime, our final installment of the Best of Rook for this summer. And today on the program, we're going to revisit an interview with an Iranian global community icon who we sadly lost this summer, but who will be remembered for years to come. He was the kid from Shiraz who ascended to the heights of the most American of institutions. Dr. Firuz Naderi, was well known for his rise to the top levels of NASA and his brilliant work in bringing humanity closer to Mars. But Dr. Naderi was also increasingly speaking out about the world, politics and policy in the United States and in Iran, and sometimes feeling the sting of those who disagreed with him as a consequence. Today, we replay a very special interview with Dr. Fidus Naderi about space, about belonging, and about putting oneself out there with opinions and politics. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms. We are on Spotify, on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, and CastBox. If you want to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to our YouTube channel right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in both Persian and English, check us out on Telegram at rookmedia. And if you want to support us, which we really appreciate, we crowdsource through our Patreon page. You can become a Rook member by going to our website, rookmedia.com, pressing the support us button. It takes you to our Patreon page for a few dollars a month. You can become a Rook member and support us through Patreon. We really appreciate that. Again, just go to our website, rookmedia.com and press support us. All right, let's get started. You know, our special guest on this final edition of the Best of Rook needs little introduction, especially for Americans and people of Iranian descent around the world. He spent recent decades managing NASA programs in pursuit of a most fundamental question, are we alone in the universe? Dr. Firuz Nadiri 
He was born in Iran's city of poets, Shiraz. He completed his elementary education in his hometown, then moved to Tehran for his secondary education. He immigrated to the United States after graduating from high school in the 1970s. Firuz received his doctorate from the University of Southern California in electrical engineering and joined NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1979 and went on to lead that unit as its director until 2016. On his retirement, NASA actually named an asteroid, Nadiri 5515, in his honor. Firuz referred to the asteroid and said, fortunately, it will never hit the Earth. Dr. Nadiri continued cooperating as a counselor with NASA as well as startups and in his final years also worked as an instructor of the Prospective Leaders Training Center for the Iranian American Association. He was a fellow of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and a recipient of a number of awards including NASA's Outstanding Leadership Medal, the Space Technology Hall of Fame Medal, and NASA's highest award, the Distinguished Service Medal. He was also a 2005 recipient of the Ellis Island Medal of Honor given for outstanding contributions that have enriched American society and exemplify its cultural diversity. He was most recently recognized by the American Astronautical Society and the William Randolph Lovelace II Award for outstanding contributions to space science and technology. As you may know, Dr. Fidus Naderi died earlier this summer, but his legacy surely lives on. Three years ago on this program, Dr. Fidus Naderi joined me from Los Angeles for a feature interview about his life and his work. Here's our conversation. Hello, sir. Hello, John. Thanks for that introduction. It's hard to live up to all that you said, but uh, thank you for your uh, generous uh, introduction. It's a great honor to have you on this program. I want to ask you a question now that, that is either extremely naive or profound. I'm not sure which you can decide, and, and, and perhaps it's absurd. But given that it has long been the aspiration of humankind to, to learn what kind of life might be out there in the cosmos or on Mars, and I know, I know you've long been a student of this, what will we gain by finding an answer to that age-old question, are we alone in the universe or not? Well, look, uh, the, in the vastness of the universe, uh, and to just give you a quick sense of uh, how large the universe is, uh, you um, are in Toronto. If you go to the nearest lake or nearest beach and try to pick a sand grain, a single sand grain, out of all the sand grains in the lake, that is, um, let's call that our sun. And, uh, and then continue counting all the sand grains in the local beaches. And then when you're done, uh, everything in so- South America, North America, Europe, in fact, count all the sand grains <laughs> on the beaches on Earth. Okay. And the number of stars, stars being other entities like our sun, is more than all the sand grains in the world. It would seem uh, one way or the other, either we are so uh, blessed uh, among all these sand grains that we uh, alone uh, have developed uh, life uh, here on planet Earth around the sun, or in fact you can use the argument that that would be uh, uh, rather um, 
arrogant of us to even think that right. that there are many many more life forms at any at any rate it gives you a context for us being here on earth i think that's profound knowing whether in fact we are alone in, in the universe or not and even though this is not the subject of this discussion because it takes a long time so i will avoid it uh, if you look at how life first arose on Earth since it was formed four and a half billion years ago, and how that happened, which is uh, uh, the probability is very, very low, but it did. If you find out, not in any other sand grain, but in our own little sand grain, in our solar system, there was a second place like Mars that independent of Earth, also developed life, then the probability that the universe is teeming with life would be exponential. So that is one of the reasons we go to Mars. But generally, Gian, I, I think our young people are always inspired and seek to go into math and computer science and technology, uh, you know, when there is uh, something inspirational, and you can't deny that space exploration is excellent, uh, is uh, inspirational. Um, and uh, throughout the years, uh, our technology that we use in everyday life, in uh, medicine, uh, in uh, assembly of uh, uh, machines and things like that, in GPS, they have all been helped by the fact that we have developed these technologies right. Uh, for space, and years later, it has sort of found its way into the normal life. So the people who say, well, what does it mean to me? Even if the philosophical question that we just talked about doesn't get you, uh, then uh, you would give it a nod because it actually helps your life here on Earth. Let me come back to that, because that's a, that in terms of funding, that's a big question too. But uh, first of all, by the way, just parenthetically, I, uh, listening to you, you're so into this. <laughs> I know you're technically retired from NASA, but but you're kind of like Michael Jordan. You you retire, but then you come back. I mean, Peter's not there. Not there. He seems to have never really left NASA, and space exploration never really leaves Firuz. Would that be correct? Yeah, it goes in uh, your blood. Uh, first of all, you know, I have stepped down from my full-time duty at NASA. I have not retired. You can't just turn the switch off and retire. So I'm still pretty active, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, in consulting in uh, back to NASA and also with early-stage startups. So I'm still fairly active, and uh, you're addicted to it. Why? What, what is the, can you put it into words? What's the drug that is uh, space exploration for you? Um, you know, I coach uh, a number of uh, young uh, Iranian students, um, actually uh, international, not only Iranian. They always ask me, you know, we want to follow in your footsteps and, you know, what propelled you ahead. There is only one thing I can think of over and above everything else, and that is curiosity. I think that is what drives us the yearning to know what's around the band, to go around the corner and see what's around the band. I think that propels um, everybody. And uh, so what uh, 
keeps me engaged is that there is so much to know, and I'm so naturally curious that uh, you always try to stay um, up to date, and that's what drives you. Hmm. It's interesting that you should use the word curiosity. Let, let me stick with the Mars missions for another couple of minutes. You were directly involved with the well-known Curiosity mission, a rover that is currently on Mars. It's doing its job. And on the NASA science website, it says that the ultimate goal of the Curiosity is human exploration of Mars. Uh, what would that look like? How could it benefit us and, and the universe? What does human exploration on or of Mars look like? Well, uh, you know, go back to the 15th century. Uh, Europe was doing well. Portugal was doing well. Uh, the known universe was known to them. And uh, had they not been curious to try to find out what else is there, uh, you know, they would have never crossed the oceans and tried to go to America. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the rest is history. So it is uh, within us, you know, it is part of our uh, human's DNA that wants to explore. And, uh, and it, through that exploration, as I explained earlier, uh, their uh, life uh, enriches. So uh, the idea of uh, trying to get further and further out in the universe uh, stems from that. Now, there are some people who say, well, if you're going to Mars because you think someday Earth would be uninhabitable and, uh, you know, you're going to Mars so you can have a second beachhead, and that's um, foolhardy, why don't you take care of Earth? Why are you destroying Earth so that you need to go to some place of that's never the argument. Of course we should take care of Earth first. Uh, that's the only life, uh, the only uh, home that we know. Mm. So Mars is not to be a substitute for Earth. So it is stems uh, first and foremost out of curiosity to push further into the uh, uh, universe. But uh, we are foolish enough to someday... Uh, make uh, Earth uninhabitable, then it would give us another option. Steve Hawking uh, said that uh, if within 1,000 years from now humans have not found another place which they can live on aside from Earth, in that we will go extinct. Let me ask the question directly. You know, at the height of the U.S.-Soviet space race, there there seemed to be this great appetite for spending when it came to space exploration. What is the case you would make today for uh, someone who says, why why is my nation putting sure. resources into a Mars mission versus health care or the environment? Sure. If you take a dollar of federal government and then take a penny, 100 of it, out of that dollar, and then cut it in half, and then cut that in half, that's the budget of NASA. And so if you are, in fact, uh, hard up for uh, balancing the budget relative to other urgencies, I would submit to you that the war that America had with Iraq, that would fund NASA for 70 years. So I think it would be misguided, given all the benefits that I cited, to go after that quarter of one penny, try to save money to fund Social Security or Medicare. Uh, there are other places where I think 
we are spending foolishly that if, in fact, you want to rebalance your priorities, that's where to look. Uh, it is not to got NASA. You, you talked about what people get wrong in terms of the budget uh, when it comes to, to NASA. What, what are myths that people have about NASA? What do people get wrong about this institution? It depends. Uh, it, I mean, there are uh, conspiracy theorists abound. Uh, you know, there are people who think that we know a lot. We've been in contact with aliens, and and uh, uh, we are hiding that from the public. Wait, and, that's and so not forth. true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let me clarify and and say no. That and okay. that is uh, right. not true. And the uh, second thing is that uh, you know we uh, faked the uh, moon landing. You know, we that was all done in Hollywood studios and we faked it and then no matter how many times you explain it to them they still come back to it so uh, there are conspiracy theories which i think do not want to learn and uh, i have stopped uh, uh, wasting my breath uh, talking to them <laughs> if you I'm, i i want to shift from space into identity but just before i do that if you could set a mission goal for exploration without any concern for budgetary requirements or political support, what would that goal be? Aside from uh, human travel, which uh, I think uh, to Mars, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Elon Musk's uh, bravado notwithstanding, I mean, at one time he said, you know, we're going to go there in 2018, and, <laughs> uh, then it's 2024, I don't think that's going to happen. I think sometimes between 20, 30, few years after that, um, that's a possibility. In fact, just before I left NASA, with the help of two colleagues, uh, we laid out a plan uh, to, in fact, enable uh, you know such a mission. And knowing, you know, just what you talked about about NASA budget, knowing that we can never go back to early uh, 60s with the Cold War and uh, you know, b budget was uh, no issue. We uh, said, what if NASA budget never grows beyond what it is right now, just grows with inflation? How long will it take and how would we uh, sequence things to go to Mars? And it turned out to be uh, mid-2030s. Now, uh, on uh, is a bit more ambitious, which I think is good. I think NASA is getting too conservative. I think it needs somebody uh, from the private sector to sort of push NASA. So I think SpaceX is really not in competition with NASA, but I think it's a nice compliment. Uh, they may bring it uh, forward a little bit, but it is not in the next few years but will will go uh, eventually. So human to Mars is one. And the second one of my favorite is that we believe that if there is currently uh, any kind of biology elsewhere in our solar system, the probability is the highest for a moon of Jupiter. You know, Jupiter, uh, unlike us that have only one moon, Jupiter has like 67, 68 moons. And one of them, Europa, so has a vast ocean which is cocooned inside uh, a shell of 20 or so kilometer ice. We believe that all the conditions for emergence of life uh, is there for Europa, 
and be able to find that out, I, I think, would be another great thing. And probably was the last mission that I worked on before I left NASA. You were a kid from Shiraz who had a great facility for math and science, as the story goes. You came to America as a, as a young man in the late 70s. Uh, much of your story has been told elsewhere, and there is a great deal of, of pride in our diaspora that an Iranian has ascended to the celestial heights that you have. Let me ask a, a question this way. Is there anything about being from the East, growing up there, being Iranian, that you think helped your perspective on life and space as you were coming up in NASA? Yeah, no, not exactly the way you asked it. Um, first of all, to clarify, and I do not say with any uh, false sense of being humble, there are so many, particularly among the young generation of Iranian-Americans that come here, or Iranian students that come here, that I see so much, so much smarter than I, that uh, I was, uh, you know, at their age, uh, is that, no, I was not particularly blessed, uh, you know, uh, being uh, uh, any more advanced than anybody else. Uh, so probably it was hard work, curiosity, and good luck that allowed me to get to where I am. Uh, so it is eminently possible for um, everybody else. And I think, in fact, uh, such a mistake for America and kudos to Canada that uh, has uh, kept the doors open for Iranian students coming here to further their education. And one way or the other, you know, I, I said this thing uh, in an interview that it is a win-win for America. Either they come and, like myself, decide to stay in this country and get absorbed in this society, which, uh, which is good, or, in fact, they go back to their country with, a, with empathy for America and change the perception yes. of the home country about America. Yes. To close the doors on Iranian students, which get accepted uh, disproportionately at uh, you know, uh, universities like Stanford and MITs and Caltech, it's just so short-sighted by the current administration that uh, it just, uh, you know, frankly infuriates me. What about that that notion of hard work that you talk about, though? And not to romanticize the notion of immigrants uh, being hardworking, et cetera, but do you think that there was an element to that, that you outworked uh, those around you because uh, of uh, coming from somewhere else and needing to work that much harder, uh, given the language tools and all the and, and uh, the pedagogical approach and having to adapt to everything in, in the States? No, I think the classical picture that we have of the immigrants that try harder, um, uh, you know, it it's, uh, really is there. There is a, you may know him, uh, Omide Kurdistani, he sure. was... Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the 10th employee at Google and now is the executive chairman at Twitter. He gave a commencement speech at, uh, at the university, and there's something that he said he stuck with me. You know, he came here as a 14-year-old with uh, his uh, single mom, and uh, he talked about how he got ahead given the mindset that you're talking about. Uh, and, you know, at the, at the beginning, you are not native, your English, if you're like in Canada or U.S., is not good enough, and uh, your um, 
come from a different culture, you have to adapt. All of that makes you work harder. So, but what he said that stuck with me was that he said that now, you know, years, 50 years later, now that I'm well assimilated in the American culture, one thing that I tell all immigrants, that after you succeed, don't lose the mindset of an immigrant. Keep that with you. Even though you don't face the same challenges as you did when you first came here. And that, you know, mindset that he talked about, uh, you know, uh, says everything. And do you have that mindset? I've always kept it. I think, yeah, I've always, uh, I'm very competitive anyways, but uh, yes, I've kept that mindset. Tell me about, you know, on uh, leaping off that, uh, jumping off that very point. Tell me about being a guy who has worn the emblem of one might say the most American of institutions on your sleeve, NASA, but who also regularly and proudly identifies as Iranian. How do those two nations coexist in you? Ah, you know, I, I refer to that as the curse and the blessing of having two countries. It is difficult. Uh, you know, I. You talked a little bit about my history, uh, my adult life, and I call my adult life beyond my high school years. And high school years, you know, I went to a a boarding Catholic uh, high school in Tehran, and so I was sort of shielded from the society. So even when I left Iran at 18, I had not really grown up all that much uh, in the outside world of, uh, uh, you know, Iran society. But beyond that, uh, now I've spent 95% of my life in, in America. Adult life. Adult life. Right. And uh, I feel uh, in a very strong uh, way that I owe a uh, sense of gratitude uh, to two countries, uh, one in which I was born and the other one which enabled the rest of my life. Uh, and I cannot differentiate. Uh, you know, when people say, well, you know, are you really an Iranian or an American? Mm. And uh, my response has always been, you know, once you break an egg into a bowl and then steer it, it's very hard to separate the, uh, <laughs> the yolk from the white. And that is uh, most people who have immigrated and have been here for a long time. So I, you know, have a sense of belonging to both. And when some people, as you know, maybe we'll get to talk about it, um, uh, they talk about, you know, you need to vote this way or the other way. It's your duty to uh, Iran and forget about any sense of duty that you have to America, because after all, you're Iranian. And I said, no, I'm not Iranian. I'm Iranian-American. Right. The both go together. I have duties uh, and sense of loyalty to Iran and sense of loyalty to America. So I'm not going to choose. I mean, no matter how much you try to press me and shame, you know, fr frankly, in uh, uh, social media, they try to shame you into taking sides yes. uh, between your two identities. Yes. And I just refuse to do it. Uh, those misguided people who insist, uh, let them live their lives. But uh, most of the people that I know here, they feel obligations to both countries. 
And there are times where there were people who were advocating that America should bomb Iran, uh, you know, to get rid of the current regime, which, by the way, uh, not to politicize your uh, show, I'm very much against. Uh, but I, you know, I was very much against it. Uh, you, you know, you don't bomb a nation in order to get rid of uh, the mullahs. It's easy for me to say, sitting in Los Angeles, I know that the bomb will not drop on my head, uh, to say, yeah, at, at any cost, by any means, get these people out, bomb, so two million people die, so what? These people, are, I, I, no, I can't say that. And then here, when people ask me to vote one way or the other, uh, you know, forgetting that America has uh, environmental issue, medical issue, race issue, uh, social security issues, and dozens of issues on which when Americans go to poll and vote, they should keep it forefront in their mind. I'm not going to sacrifice all of that because some people are thinking, uh, no, I mean, you should only look at the next election through the lens of Iran, which I refuse to do. Okay, you've given me a treasure chest of talking points in that one answer that that I want to deconstruct and take one at a time. We'll get to the politics, uh, but first, a couple of statements. First of all, I'm on to you. I knew you were going to, I suspected you might use your egg analogy, uh, which I love, but I do want to say sometimes people still choose to separate the egg, even though it naturally mixes in the bowl. That still exists. To, to extend the metaphor perhaps further than you wish to. Um, and, and the other thing I was going to say is uh, I'm not sure if it matters. You know, you did the percentage on how long you've been here and how long you've been in Iran. To a certain extent, Peter's John, I don't know if that actually even matters because I didn't spend my life first, first half of my life in Iran, but I still feel that duality and that incredible uh, identity and that devotion to two nations, in my case, Canada and, and, the, and Iran, even the UK, where I spent my early years. And, and I know cousins of mine or friends who've come very recently in the last two or three years or five years and feel that same devotion to, to their new country as, as you do, having been here for a few decades. So it's almost not about the amount of time spent, but this preternatural, this, um, this bigger than geography feeling that you, we develop towards the, uh, a duality of cultures. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you, you you notice that I did not say I did not weigh my allegiances based on the number of years. I said ninety five percent adult life here right. and so forth. Right. So uh, no, I, I I think the loyalty and a sense of belonging that you have to do the two countries are not uh, weighed by number of years that you have spent in either places. Uh, no, I was born there. They're, when they're in my roots, my parents, my history, uh, uh, it's all rooted in Iran. I, whether I was there for 18 years or 1,800 years, that's there. So all I'm saying, it is unreasonable for people who have not experienced this duality to question your loyalty towards one versus the other. Right. It only the people who have lived this life and they are deeply connected to uh, two cultures, they know what I'm talking about. They know the uh, sense of belonging and loyalty that you have towards both, uh, which is, uh, you know, I, I don't 
uh, ascribe an index to it. I mean, 60% here, 40% there, it, it's not that. I just give you a factual data and how much of my life has been, uh, you know, in the I two countries. You. But America is where I got educated. It's where I got the opportunity to work, as you said, in one of the most American of Americans institutions. So it gave me all of that. I owe it. I owe it to that culture. I love that culture. And I love my home country, and I don't see any contradictions in those. Even within the loyalty, as you know, there's, there isn't always unity. And uh, I want to ask you about our global Iranian community. I know you've said you're uncomfortable, by the way, with any kind of hero worship. And again, you've demonstrated your modesty already in this interview. But, but you are one of the most prominent names and voices in our diaspora. And you've talked about seeing how other communities help each other and their home base, if you will. Jewish Americans say, helping out other Jews and Israel. Uh, and yet, uh, for all of our our wealth and education in the diaspora, the brain trust, as uh, you've called it at times, we, we don't always do that. How frustrated are you by that? And tell me about the delta between pride and collective support in our Iranian community. Yeah, so... Um I, I think, in uh, unfortunately, uh, our uh, country, uh, home country, Iran, has been facing so many on top of uh, what they're suffering under the current regime. There are also, you know, there's been floods and there's been earthquakes, there's been pandemic. And uh, I have seen remarkable uh, coming of together of people trying to raise funds uh, you know, for these causes, I've been involved in a number of them myself. And even in a more steady state, uh, I'm involved with organizations that try to educate young kids who are bright, but their parents want them to come and go on the street and sell trinkets to bring an additional income home, and therefore they take him out of school. And you go talk, tell the parents, uh, uh, you know, how much this nine-year-old girl brings home? They say, oh, $50. They say, okay, if we give you the $50, would you let her go back to school? You know, and they say yes. And so I'm part of an organization that does that, and there's several, many different organizations and many people who are involved. But also the enmity that's, uh, that stands in uh, between U.S. and Iran doesn't make it easy. I mean, the banks don't transfer money. Right. Uh, you know, it's not easy to send money and, you know, engage in commerce. So within the limitation, unfortunately, and hostility that exists between the two countries, uh, there are people, uh, you, you know, who within the limitation try to, uh, you know, to help Iran. The unity that you talked about, which is lacking, it is uh, a vast majority. Uh, I, I will hesitate to put a percentage on it. A vast majority of Iranians who live outside of Iran, I don't know, some estimates says seven, eight million uh, people. Uh, in America, the estimate ranges between one to two million people. Now, I know Toronto, for example, is, uh, you know, has a very large population of Iranian Americans. It's exploded here, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you know, don't uh, force me to bring proof. It's my sense that the majority 
do not like, do not approve of the current regime in Iran, and they want it gone. Not modified, but gone. Uh, and they want a, uh, a secular democracy in place of it. But, now back to your unity question, they cannot agree what form that secular democracy should take, and worse than that. And I face it all the time. It is not sufficient that you're against that regime. They want you to be against the, in, uh, that regime in a way that they are against that regime, to fall behind their line. So that is why 40 years has gone by and nothing has happened, because people cannot unify. I mean, uh, you know, we say that the mullahs are uh, ignorant, and, and you know, I won't cite that notion, certainly. Hmm. But somebody like Khomeini was clever enough, uh, differentiate between being smart and being clever, right, right. clever enough to uh, unify people who, went, who were against the prior uh, monarchy and unite them for his purpose. Now, of course, uh, you know, he betrayed all of them later, but nonetheless was able to unify them. Uh, we lack leadership that's able to uh, unify. Right but why now. are we, sorry to cut you off, but why are we so prone to, you've called it before, the my way or the highway attitude. Why are we so prone to that in the as a global community? Jen, I don't think it is unique to us. I mean, I look at the polarization in American society. Uh, you know, that is here as well. Uh, I don't know. But leaders can either try to unify or they can further divide people. But going back to your uh, point about uh, Iranians, I think we need a charismatic leader that will try to overcome this tendency by the diaspora, certainly outside of Iran. Uh, I, I think people inside Iran in some way are more unified in a way that they want this regime gone by any means possible. But in Ameri in uh, outside Iran, we're more engaged uh, trying to pick our favorite government after these guys are gone and willing to fight over that, forgetting about the fact that these guys aren't, haven't exactly packed their suitcases right. ready to go. Uh, so the first job is try to, to uh, facilitate their departure. And uh, so I, I don't know. I think a, a, a charismatic leader could help uh, reason uh, with the different factions and try to unify them. But I just don't see it right now on the horizon. You've made an interesting decision in recent years. Um, I mean, while you were serving completely at NASA uh, up until 2016, you, you stayed quite clear of politics. Um, in, in the last few years, you've become quite vocal in expressing, for example, uh, your dismay at the political situation in Iran uh, and in the United States with uh, Donald Trump as well. You've pulled no punches. Um, I want to get to the kind of reaction you've received from that. But first, tell me about that decision, because it feels like you would need to have known that this is uh, this is going to be a minefield to start opening up in terms of uh, being open about your political feelings. Tell me about making that decision. Yeah, Jian, the trigger point was a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, I was so engrossed uh, in my professional life, and the social media wasn't what it is today, 
and that I sort of steered clear of politics uh, until 2009. 2009, when the Green Movement happened, and because of the social media, I saw how the young people uh, with nothing more than T-shirts and a rock to protect them were getting massacred. Uh, you know, it just uh, awakened something in me. And I started uh, getting a lot of messages because now social media shrunk the world, so I was in contact with young people in Iran. Uh, why don't you say anything? Why don't you take a position? And at that time, I heavily aligned myself with what uh, came to be known as the Green Movement without ever uh, mentioning uh, who are the Agaya, Karubi, Agaya, who was the other guy, Musavi. Uh, without ever mentioning, because my support was not for them. My support was for the fight of the Iranian people for democracy. So I aligned myself with the Green Movement. And that sort of started that 2009, so it's been sort of 11 years that got engaged in uh, political discourse. And then later, uh, you know, I did make what I look back right now, uh, in retrospect, uh, probably not the right thing to do, is that uh, in the last election, uh, I was so intent basically uh, through urging of uh, friends and family in Iran that said if uh, Raisi becomes uh, president, our life would be even more miserable than it is today, that, uh, you know, he should not become president. And for me, it was very obvious. If you don't vote, basically, uh, you guarantee that he would become, because he was the uh, elected, selected candidate of the Rahbar, that he would become so I urge people to vote. So I've gotten a lot of backlash on that one. You know, how could you be against the regime but still urging people to vote? Uh, because, uh, as we can see, Rouhani has proved yet again that there is no differentiation between these Ahons. They're all the same. And uh, how can you have done that? Uh, and so once again, uh, I was, uh, you know, in favor of uh, people's lives not getting even worse than what it is today. But apparently it has made no difference. And that has sort of solidified my current position that this whole regime in its entirety, this whole apparatus in all factions, whether Eslah Talab, whether it is uh, what, whatever they, they call the Usul Gara or whatever else, that they entire thing needs to be dismantled and replaced by a secular democracy. But uh, if you have time to talk about it, there is another thing, unfortunately, aside from our disunity, another thing which prevents us from finally waking up from this nightmare. And that is something which has been in our Iranian DNA for now, uh, you know, a couple of centuries, uh, not unique to current time. And that is that we believe unless somebody else wants it, some other force outside of Iran, be it, uh, and in different times it has changed, be it China, be it Russia, be it England, British, or yeah. being America, unless they wish it, nothing will change in Iran. So we are always are looking for a savior, which never comes. 
So we really, if we are to wake up from this nightmare, we really need two things to happen. One is the unity that you talked about before, uh, all uh, pulling in the same direction. And the second thing is stop looking for this, you know, it's the same thing as people in Iran who have this imam, apparently, which is down at the bottom of a well, and they're waiting for him to come out and spread joy and peace around the world. It's the same thing. Uh, it's the same superstition that the religious people have when they are waiting for, whether it be Trump or be anybody else, to come and liberate Iran, which will never happen. So without these two, to be believing in your own will and um, ability to make change, and without uniting, uh, you know, they've been around for 40 years, they'll stay around another 40. Fears, tell me about the backlash and, and how it affects you. They, you know, one thing that we do have trouble with in, in, our, in our community, in our diaspora, and we've, we've touched on it many, many times on this show already, um, is just sitting across from each other and, and talking, even if we have profoundly different opinions about how the regime must change or how, we, how that change should be prosecuted, etc., it's a difficult, Banafshe Akhlaghi was uh, on this program, and she said, yeah. look, the definition of democracy is just let's sit and actually talk to each other. But yeah. um, for a number of reasons, some of which you've cited, there's tensions are high and people's opinions are that my way or the highway uh, position that does sometimes prevail. It prevails depending on which guest we have on each week. We're, we're labeled one show or another, sometimes completely yeah. contradicting yeah. each other. So you were this guy for many years, I can only assume who was the the NASA guy that everybody in the global community, Iranian community, loved and adored. And then all of a sudden, as you start taking opinions, uh, political opinions, be they about Iran or be they about Donald Trump, etc., um, you start hearing from people. What what has that been like for you? Uh, so, Jian, first of all, you have to, uh, you know, you cannot um, step into the political arena without developing a thicker skin. I was deeply hurt. Uh, right, partially because of what you said, I was not used to. Uh, maybe I was spoiled by um, the love and respect that I had received. Uh, many of which, by the way, was exaggerated and and deserved, I'm sure. But the assault and how vicious it was uh, caught me by uh, by surprise. And this labeling that you just that is the uh, the sickness right now in um, our diaspora. Uh, it is to, uh, and by the way, uh, you know, the social media is a two-edged sword. It, it allows a lot of opinions to be aired, but also it allows very easily, without impunity, without uh, with impunity, to label people. Yep. Okay, so people come and you say, you know, Firuz and Adiri. Uh, a, uh, a stooge of, uh, of the Jomhuri Islami, which just on the face of it <laughs> would sound stupid. Anyone who hasn't gone back to Iran, for, even when my mom passed away, I couldn't go back to Iran. And I've been warned that uh, all my communications is being monitored by Jomhuri Islami. And every fiber of my body is 
uh, rebels against this regime. Uh, you know, but nonetheless, I mean, it doesn't cost anything. You just come and you say, uh, he is. He is a stooge of the Islamic Republic. Or pick an institution that allegedly uh, is a uh, doorfront for them, uh, the uh, NIAC, uh, which uh, I don't have any independent way of uh, uh, knowing uh, whether they are or not, but uh, without any... Uh, proof, evidence, you know, you're engaged in NIAC, you are part of NIAC, you're on the board of NIAC, which I've never, ever been. You, you deny it maybe once or twice or three times, and then you uh, figure it's useless. You know, it's trying to stick your finger, you know, in a hole that's gushing water. You, you give up. But nonetheless, I still look across the three platforms where I am, Facebook, Instagram, and, and Twitter, the percentage of people who come and sling mud relative to other people who still, uh, you know, they say, stick with it, please be our voice, speak, you know, don't mind these people. It's, it's still a small percentage. It's, uh, you know, five or six percentage uh, of the people who come on my platforms, they, uh, you know, yeah, it hurts. It hurts, but, you know, you can't do anything about it, so you don't uh, dwell. And you just hope that rational people uh, would see that that is the case. And the thing with the social media is that you read something without trying to ascertain its validity. You repeat it. Mm. And then somebody else repeated, repeats that. And so when I have confronted some people where I thought they were more educated, because the uneducated ones are very easy to, uh, to spot. They right, always right. Uh, invoke body parts below, below their belt. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you dismiss those as uh, they, they are in a gutter. Mm-hmm. But the people who appear to be more educated, you say, can you show me one evidence what do you say? I mean, based on what do you say that? And so we go back and forth and back and forth, and it ends up saying, okay, I apologize. Except I don't want to spend that much time, you know, confronting these people. So by and in large, I try to ignore it and say, you know, and state my opinion and not be bullied by these people right. because right. – uh, the more that you respond to them uh, in some way, you elevate them, and they're not worth it. You've been so generous with your time. Let me finish off with a couple of questions that are, are zoom-out questions about what you see uh, and what you have felt that can come in the future. This, this program, at its heart, is about, we say conversations from to and about the Iranian diaspora, is about people of Iranian descent. Of course, it's for, for more than just people of Iranian descent. But for those of us who are of Iranian descent, it matters what is happening in Iran. Um, we can't let go of that. And as you've said in this interview, it's been a particularly disastrous year, dating back to the, the killing of protesters in the streets, to the Flight 752, to COVID, uh, it has just been horrendous. Fears, in many interviews, you have expressed your optimism and hope in the younger generations in Iran today. 
where does that hope stem from? I mean, are you in touch with young people in Iran? What, why do you feel so optimistic? Even though it is really uh, increasingly harder and harder uh, to be, but, you know, what I have said, and I think it's, it's hardly can be argued, that when we talk about the wealth of Iran, the assets of Iran, you know, often people talk about uh, the oil and gas energies, and, you know, we are number three, four, whatever it is that we are in the world, and other things, Bali, Pesach, Javier, what have you. These are not, you know, the real assets of Iran. The assets of Iran, uh, it's the, the young people. And that's the future. That's the, tr- that's the treasure. And uh, ultimately, I think if, if something is going to happen, it's going to be because of them. Uh, I think older people are by nature conservative and stay home. And it is young people who are optimistic and idealistic and go and, in fact, um, sacrifice uh, the most valuable thing that they have, which is their life. So I'm optimistic because of Iran's youth. It is educated. It is in touch, uh, you know, because of uh, the uh, social media. And at the end, uh, if um, I hope that Iran will come out of this thing, um, my hope is, you know, it's the young people. Uh, it's not the wealthy person who sitting in Beverly Hills or sitting in Toronto or what have you or, or uh, Vancouver with uh, ill-gotten wealth, and, uh, and they're not going to do anything. Uh, they took the loot and they run away. Uh, so it is the young people. Uh, that's, uh, if I have optimism, it's because of that. A final question. You've, uh, you've talked about how your experience in space exploration tells you that a unifying principle uh, we can live by is that planet Earth is home to all of us. In other words, whatever else divides us, if we stand above and look back, we all inhabit the Earth as one. It's, it's incredibly simple and yet such a profound perspective that we seem to have so much trouble with on this planet. What could we all learn from seeing things from the perspective of outer space? You know, normally I end my lectures with a um, with a, one final slide, uh, which is a side-to-side image of the map of the Middle East, with all the borders and all the uh, you know havoc that's going on there, and the other one is the view of the astronauts when they look back at Earth and they see this beautiful, unified blue marble without any of those artificial lines that we have drawn on a map of the Earth. And we have found uh, languages and religions and cultures uh, uh, and race, uh, you know, to separate us from each other. Yet, when you look at it from the space, uh, Earth is home to all of these differences. And that's the only home that we have. So I think it is, uh, you know, you were earlier asking about the benefit of space exploration. It is this realization of unity, uh, which I think is another byproduct of the space exploration. And that's the way we ought to view uh, view the Earth and view... uh, uh, our place in it and not by 
artificially drawn lines or in geographical maps. Fidus Nazari, it's been uh, an unquestionable uh, pleasure and an honor to, to get to do this with you. Thank you so much for doing this today. Hey, thank you, Jean. You're a very good interview, and it was easy to talk to you. I hope to see you soon. Merci. Khodafis. Bye-bye. There you go, a conversation with the late Dr. Fidus Nadiri, who we sadly lost this summer. He will be remembered, and his legacy lives on. And this is full time for Rook for today, and full time for our Best of Rook series. As we head into September, it's a brand new season of Rook. We'll have our season preview show next Thursday, September 7th, and then our, our launch of a new season of Rook for the big new edition on September 14th. That's a couple of Thursdays from now. In the meantime, you can visit all of our previous episodes and programming at rookmedia.com. Our videos, our funnies, it's all there. Rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together and who put the best of Rook together all summer. Smart Pega, talented Anahita, savvy Rohan, bearded Omid, super parry, some methodical Kaveh, sound person Luis. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashi.